turn to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2 this morning. We finally got through chapter 1. So uh, some of you are probably saying, thinking, how many years is it going to be with going through 1 Corinthians? And uh, I don't know, so hang in there. We'll find out. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 today, we finally got there, and we're looking at still these, these opening uh, uh, messages that Paul has for the church there that are so profound, so foundational, and I trust will be speaking to the hearts of all of us, whether or not we, we know Christ, uh, whether we're new believers, whether we are uh, been around uh, the Lord and know, have known Him for, for years. All these messages should speak to our hearts, I trust. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Word of God, uh, the only foundation that we have for life and living and, and for salvation. We're so grateful, Lord, that you have provided us this divine revelation that we can study and understand and know truth in a world, Lord, where there's so many voices and so many people claiming that they know the right way. Uh, we know there's only one right, right way, and that's through Christ. And uh, we have that perfect revelation to guide us. And as we look into it today, Lord, we pray for insight and clarity in Jesus' name. Amen. Warren Wiersbe, who I think most of you are familiar with, well-known commentator, preacher, pastor, and so forth, uh, was uh, riding with his wife in a car one day. They were traveling somewhere. She was driving. And he was proofing a book or reading a book that a publisher had asked him to look at and give his ideas on. And as he was sitting there in the car, he was groaning and moaning and finally said, I can't believe it. And his wife said, I take it you don't like the book. And he says, no, I don't like the book. This, this author doesn't even know the message of the gospel. And he said, the sad thing is, he, at one time he proclaimed the message of the gospel, but he's afraid he's got sidetracked in philosophical and even political uh, compromises in such a way that he no longer knew the truth of the gospel. Uh, that's gospel drift. And as we think about that today, we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, we find a church that's not yet seven years old, founded by the Apostle Paul himself, who was there for 18 months. And we find that nevertheless, this church is already beginning to drift from the centrality of the gospel itself and from the centrality of Christ. And the reason why is because they were trying to, uh, to bring people to themselves, to Christ, uh, through a uh, watered-down message that they thought would be more applicable, more uh, acceptable to the world around them, rather than preaching the true message of Christ and Him crucified. And as a result of that, and their desire to be uh, philosophically sound and impress the people around them, uh, we find that, this, that uh, they were drifting from the gospel message itself. And as a result of that, Paul begins to talk about that here in chapter 1 and then chapter 2. He says if you do that, if you water down the message to make it palatable to other people, you run into the problem of verse 17 where he says, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So I preach not in cleverness of speech because when you do that, when you begin to change the message itself to make people uh, more palatable to people, what you end up with is avoiding of the true gospel. Uh, if you teach the true gospel message, however, and here's the problem, in verse 18, uh, the, it says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. If you give the real deal, if you preach the true gospel message, don't be surprised that most people turn off your message. They don't want to hear it. To them, it's foolishness, it's silliness, it doesn't make sense, and so they turn away, and that's a difficult thing to do. So what do you do? Uh, when you know that uh, most people listening to your message are turned off, they don't want to hear it. They think it's ridiculous. What do we do? Well, verse 18, the latter part, he says, But to us who are being saved is the power of God. 
So you preach the message anyway. You, you, bring in the, you bring the truth of Christ anyway, even though most people would consider it foolishness because those who are being saved, for us, it is the power of God and the only power of God that can change a life and transform us. And it's because this church at Corinth didn't recognize this fact that the, the church was having so many problems. Later on, we're going to get to the problems. Uh, this church is just filled with problems. The only one we've seen so far is, is uh, their division and, and the gospel issue. But there's so many more problems coming up. And the reason those problems are coming up is because they didn't centralize themselves around the message that we find in chapter 1 and 2. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. See, what we believe determines how we live. It may not be right this minute. You might uh, live in contradiction to what you believe for a short period of time. But ultimately, what you believe will determine how you live your life. And Paul knew that. And so he begins to talk about it. I want to review a little bit. Uh, the, the Corinthians had bought into a form of the, of the gospel message uh, that was uh, distorting the message itself and distorting the, the, the image of Christ but it was very fashionable, it was very much in vogue with the culture around them. So trying to fit in with the culture and yet bring the message of Christ, they were in the process of creating something that was not the true message. And so just in a review real quickly, uh, Paul t tells them that uh, rather than gravitating towards this clever, culturally acceptable message, that he had brought them a message concerning a crucified Savior. Look at verse 22. For, of chapter 1. For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. Yes, the message is foolishness to the Gentiles who think it's silly, it's absurd. Yes, it's a stumbling block to Jews who wanted a conquering hero type of Messiah rather than the true Messiah as he came to die for us. But nevertheless, that is the message that we must preach. Secondly, he says that uh, the, or, the Corinthians were impressed with great oratorial abilities. That's why they, in chapter 1, they liked this guy, Apollos. He was elegant, we find out in the book of Acts. He was a great preacher. He was a guy that could hold the, the audience in the palm of his hands. And people absolutely loved his preaching ability. And that's what the Greeks, the, the Gentiles at Corinth, loved as well. And Paul said in chapter 2, verse 3, and we'll look at this closer in a moment, but he says, I wasn't like that. Instead, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, I never have seen a pastor put that on their resume. You know, a guy looking for a church ministry and says, well, how, what kind of a preacher are you? I'm one that comes in fear and weakness and trembling. I've never seen that on a resume. But we see it on Paul's resume right here. And we'll see why in just a moment. The Corinthians loved uh, the methodology of the polished debater. They like debates uh, and so forth. Paul says, I didn't come to debate. I came, verse 17, not in cleverness of speech, but so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. I came not to impress, not to, uh, not to have people line up to take, to take my picture and get my autograph. I came to proclaim a very clear and a simple message. And so the gospel that Paul is preaching and proclaiming is not dependent upon a, mas uh, a massage method or a world-class messenger, or a manipulative strategy. It is the, its power rests purely in the wisdom of God, not in the cleverness of human beings, including himself. And on top of all that, even if this approach worked, supposedly, it was merely a superficial outward working. It seemed to be bringing people to Christ, but it wasn't transforming lives. Why? 
Because only, verse 18, does the gospel have the power to transform lives. Your life, my life, will never be transformed as the way God wants it transformed apart from the pure and simple message that Paul is proclaiming to the church at Corinth and to us as well. And so, in correcting this church early on in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is already pointing to the superiority of God's wisdom. Now, as we go into chapter 2, he's going to contrast the wisdom of people with the wisdom of God. And as he does so, rather than, than, than compromise with the culture, as the church at Corinth was doing, Paul has brought a unique message, a unique wisdom. And that wisdom is different from the wisdom that they were buying into in three different ways. Let's take a look at those. Number one, he brought a different message, a different message. Verse one is the negative message. Uh, side of that message. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Paul is not telling these people, by the way, to, uh, to uh, preach poorly, to do a bad job of presentation of the gospel, to not worry about that. Uh, and uh, I didn't come to you, he says, in, in superiority of speech. He's not saying be a bad communicator or a bad preacher. I say that for this reason. Uh, there are some who use this text of scripture to teach a very unusual and strange and I think very inferior idea on how to preach the, preach the word of God. When I was uh, first starting to preach a little bit down in the mountains of Virginia, going, when I was going to college down there, had these opportunities and, and there, there's a lot of, if, you, if you've been in the south, you know there's a church on every corner and, uh, and many, many types of Baptist churches. And I, I was invited to a Baptist church called a Free Will Baptist. Now, I wasn't familiar with Free Will Baptist and didn't really know what that meant. Uh, and, uh, and I'm not sure all Free Will Baptists are the same. But this one that I went to, Free Will meant you just freely willed and did what you wanted to do. So it meant, and they're, they're part of their theology, part of their methodology was this, you did not prepare for a message. That would be, that would be uh, stifling the Holy Spirit. You got up and you preached whatever the Spirit seemed to be leading you to preach at the moment. So you didn't prepare a message uh, to do that. So, and there's, well, obviously you didn't have notes to be up there. If you had notes, that meant you weren't being led by the Holy Spirit. Well, I was 19 years old and uh, I, only, uh, I didn't know very much to begin with. I was just starting out. There was no way in the world I was going to prepare and have notes. So I prepared diligently and I hid my notes in my Bible. You know, kind of pinned them in there, you know. That's why, so they wouldn't see them. They thought I was being led by the Spirit, I guess, as I read my notes. But, uh, so I preached everything I knew about the Bible that day in 25 minutes. Uh, it apparently wasn't what the Lord was leading them to do in their free will. And so after I got done preaching, I was standing there. The pastor came up to do the invitation, as they do in those churches. And as he did the invitation, he went out for 25 or 30 minutes, longer than my sermon. And as I sat there listening to his message, I realized that the Spirit was leading him to preach the whole Bible from the beginning of Adam to the great white throne judgment. He preached completely through the Bible in the next 25 or 30 minutes. And, I, and as I listened to him and I watched the eyes of the people out there who weren't listening to him, I, I came to the conclusion that most likely that was his message every week. He wasn't preparing, he wasn't studying, he wasn't being ready to preach the word and explain it properly. He's simply going through the superficial outline of it. That's not what Paul's saying here. But this is the text they use. 
This is the passage they use to, to teach that kind of theology. Paul is not saying that at all. Paul is saying that he was determined not to use human wisdom and human methods to bring people to Christ. Because some, and because someone is excellent at preaching, they have great skills in the area of communication and intellectual power doesn't guarantee that God will actually use them. Matter of fact, go over to chapter 3, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. He, just, he writes this second epistle uh, probably within a year or so after 1 Corinthians. And he's kind of on the same theme in chapter 3 and in verse 5. And he says this. Look at verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Now, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Uh, Paul is saying, look, I'm not adequate for this task uh, at all. My adequacy, if there's adequacy, comes purely from God. So he didn't rest, as we go back to 1 Corinthians, he didn't rest in his abilities. Uh, he rested in the power and the adequacy of God. It's very easy to get confused and think that we're actually drawing people to Christ by using uh, methods and messages that attract people that is really not transforming lives. Paul wanted to make sure that we wouldn't do that. His, his goal was the accuracy and the clarity of the message, not trying to impress people. Now that's the negative. Look at the positive in verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, Paul's only design in going to Corinth, when he came to that city, uh, who knew, did not know the gospel, his only design was to preach Christ. Not as a teacher, not as a great moral example, not as a perfect man, not as a new kind of philosophy, but Christ crucified. Now Jesus, of course, is the perfect man, the great moral example, the most wonderful of all teachers, but the message he preached was Christ crucified, Christ dying for our sins, uh, and as he says Jesus Christ here, he is referring to the person of Christ, when he mentions crucified, he's talking about the work of Christ. So I want to explain that a little more carefully. Go back to Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. A very well-worn passage we look at often when it comes to the presentation of the gospel. What is it that we need to know to be saved? He preached Christ crucified. What do we need to know? And so if you're here today and you're not sure you're a Christian, listen carefully to the simplicity of the gospel as expressed here, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And, that, and before I actually uh, look, read the verses, let me explain this. There is one theologian and several, a lot of people that followed him that is so concerned that we somehow uh, uh, will add works to the gospel of grace. So concerned about that that he's come finally after years and years of, of, of movement has come to the place before he died in which he said the only thing we have to do to be saved is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in, in a nutshell that's true but what he means by this is explained by an illustration I've told you about several times about that he uses and that's this. If you have never heard of Jesus Christ and you're on a desert island all by yourself and washing up on the shore was a little piece, a little fragment of the Gospel of John. 
And that little fragment said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you believe on the, Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's not true. Why? Well, look at the verse of scripture I'm going to read to you in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Now notice, you must know who he is before you can be saved. It was not enough that you are on a desert island and suddenly without any background or information you believe on a name. What is that? You must know that Jesus is man, the incarnate God-man, and that he's Lord. He is God. You must believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth at the incarnation. He became the God-man, and that you must believe that about it. Now, you don't have to know, by the way, all the nuances of the Trinity. You don't have to be able to explain that to everybody you have ever met. You don't have to know all the details of, of the person and work of Christ. You don't have to know in-depth theology, but you must know, at the very minimum, that Jesus Christ is the God-man, that he came to this earth. Now, what did he come to do? That's who he is. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, when he says he'll, you believe that he raised him from the dead, that's just a shorthand, you might say, for the whole message. What was the message? Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He took our sins upon him. And after three days, God raised him from the dead. He couldn't raise him from the dead if he hadn't died. So that's shorthand for the whole message. So you have to believe in the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Why did he come? Not to set a moral example per se, although he did, but to die for our sins, to take our sins upon him. And then it goes on to say, verse 10, for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And so we press on when you believe the person and work of Christ, when you believe the message about what he's done, his mission, when you place your faith in him, you believe in him, then the Lord says, saves you from your sin. It doesn't require us changing our lives up front. It doesn't require us knowing all things about all points of theology. It requires us knowing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth as a man lived on this earth, died for our sins, took our sins upon himself, was resurrected from the dead. And when we place our faith in him, when we believe in him, it says he will save us from our sins. And you will not be disappointed. If you're disappointed in Jesus Christ, you don't know Jesus Christ. You may think you do. You might be a religious person. You might even be a church member here. But you don't know Jesus Christ. He never disappoints. I've never met anybody that doesn't disappoint. Have you? I disappoint me all the time, okay? So I know how bad it is for everybody else. You know, I, well, I'm going to say, you dis I disappoint you too, so there you go. But, no, Jesus never does. So there's the gospel message. Going back to 1 Corinthians then, so as we think about that, he is saying to these people, look, I've come to give you a message. It's a message that will save you from sin. It's a message that will make you right with God. It is the message that will give you eternal life. It's a message that will bring you into the family of God. It's, it's all these things and much more. And it's found in the simplicity of the gospel message that I've come to proclaim. So that is the message he brought. 
He brought a different message than what the people in that culture wanted to hear. Secondly, he brought a different method. Look at verse 3. It says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. There's his attitude. Let's take a look at his attitude for just a moment. What is, what is that attitude? He says here, I come in fear and in much trembling. You know, the attitude uh, of influencing people, uh, both today, you know, of influential people, let's put it that way, of powerful people, of leaders, is often that of self-reliance and even arrogance as they lead. I believe it was Plato who said that, uh, that, that philosophers should rule the world because only they know how to live life. And we see that today in the critical race theory and the social gospel movement, that there's a group of people supposedly, they're, they're the only ones that know how to live life, therefore they should lead us in living life. Today, we, we drill into our young people, have for several decades now, the idea that they can do anything they want to do and handle anything they want to do in themselves. All they need is a better self-image, more confidence in themselves. No matter what the problem is, they can do whatever they want to do. When Kamala Harris was sworn in as the Vice President of the United States a few months ago, the commentator on the program I was watching Said, said this is the message that was being sent out at this moment to every girl and especially every black girl in America. And the message is this, you can be anything you want to be. Folks, that's utter nonsense. And it's frustrating. And it's, it's, a, it's a source of many, many, many problems. Kamala Harris is the only woman in history to be vice president of the United States, the only black woman to do it. And she's not your normal person here. She comes from a great deal of privilege, great deal of wealth, great deal of family background. And not every little girl that wants to be vice president is going to be vice president, right? That's utter nonsense. But that's the kind of thing we have worked into the hearts of our young people for generations now. And many of them have, have believed it. And so no wonder they're so frustrated. I could do anything I want to do. But chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, well, that isn't the way I saw it. He said, look, I, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. What is Paul anxious about? What is he fearful about? Remember, this is Paul. You know, he's like an army general. I mean, he's, he's a leader if there ever was a leader. He's an alpha male, you know, tough, tough guy. You can imagine Paul being afraid of anything. And yet he says that he was. Why? Because he was given a task by God. And by the way, you and I have been given that same tasks by God to do something we can never do. If your car's broken down, a good mechanic can fix it. If, you, if your business is flopping, a good manager could probably take care of that. If you're sick, a good doctor can give you medicine. But how do you bring people to Christ with a foolish message. How do, how, how do you and I draw people to Jesus Christ with a message they don't want to hear? And no wonder Paul was struggling with that. Paul did not say, here's what you should do, gain self-confidence. Improve that self-image. Step up a bit. Believe in yourself. You can do anything you want to do. He says something very, very different. Go back to 2 Corinthians again, chapter 12. And again, a well-worn passage. We've, we turn to this often, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But Paul, again, is writing to the same church. And maybe a year later, 
verses 9 and 10. When Paul was going through some kind of a trial that was really difficult for him, and it may be this is the trial he's talking about. The fear and the trembling, the lack of confidence, the, the struggles he was having in his ministry in proclaiming the gospel. I don't know that for sure. Nobody seems to know what that is. But he does say this in verse 9, And he, Christ, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. You see the difference? Paul's dependency was on Christ, not on himself. And so when we go back to our passage of Scripture, this is what he's talking about here, I believe. In himself, he's nothing. In himself, he's weak. In himself, he can change nobody's life. He must be totally, completely dependent upon Christ. And, and that's an unusual trait. If you're given a task, say here in the church, to organize something, and you are a natural organizer, how much do you pray about it? If you're given the task of teaching something, and you're already an excellent teacher, skilled teacher, trained teacher, how much do you depend on the Lord for being able to do a good job at that? How much do you depend on yourself instead? The more things we believe in ourselves that we can do, uh, the less we depend on Him. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't believe we can fix a car if we can fix a car. Don't take this too far. That doesn't mean we, can't, we shouldn't say we can't read if we can read. What this means is this, when it comes to the things of Christ, our dependency is totally and completely on Him. We do what He called us to do, proclaim the message. It is up to the Holy Spirit to do the work of transforming lives through the power of the message. That's his attitude. Look at verse 4, his, his approach. He says, And my message and my preaching was not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul makes it real clear. He didn't come to impress them with his use of language, his skills, his, his intelligence. Uh, he didn't come to, to debate. He came to give a message. And his method was very clear and very simple, not with persuasive words of wisdom, but the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The word for message here in the Greek is the word logos. That's the same word used uh, as a noun to describe Jesus in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the logos, the word. It's the same word used in 2 Timothy 2 verses 2 and 15 when we're told that we are to accurately handle the logos, the word of God, and entrust it to faithful people, the logos. Same word. And in my logos, in my word, in my communication, and my preaching, my proclamation, there were not in persuasive words. I wasn't trying to knock you down with my abilities, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It's an important thought here, folks. You, uh, I read a book a few years ago by a guy who had done copious study on preaching. He had studied sermons from the past, conservative evangelical sermons, and sermons from the present generation. And he found quite a difference. 
He found that the sermons in the past were more focused on biblical exposition, the centrality of Christ, uh, the, the, the teaching of the Word of God itself. And he found much of the preaching today was more thematic, wrapped around the issues that people are facing today. And he mentioned several like boredom, uh, eating disorders, stress, burnout, a midlife crisis, loneliness, and so forth. So that was his research. His application was interesting, very opposite of what I would apply. His application was, was this. In past generations, life wasn't so complex. And so our preaching has to change to keep up with the complexity of life. And so now we need to preach on these themes that nobody preached on 50 years ago because they were preaching on the Word of God. And we need now to have these thematic things. That's called relevant, practical preaching that you hear often advertised. Let me suggest something different. I'll take a different takeaway. The reason we have the problems we have with all these issues is because we're not concentrating on the revealed Word of God. Because, we're, 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 because we have now moved away from the centrality of the Word and the centrality of Christ, and because we don't believe it's adequate and sufficient for life and godliness now, we have to come up with these other methodology and themes to deal with and write all these books on all these subjects. Is it possible, you think about this this afternoon, is it possible that if we really went back to the Word of God and studied it carefully, that these other issues will be, to be met and challenged and changed in light of the already revealed Word of God? Do you think Jesus Christ did not know when the Word of God was written through the, through the Holy Spirit that we would have these struggles? I think He did. Do you think the Word of God is adequate only for the past generations? Or is it adequate for us now? I think we've made a major mistake making the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. Jesus Christ doesn't need to be practical. He is practical. His word, his life, infuses every aspect of our life. And many of our problems are caused because we don't recognize that. So Paul isn't here to impress them. He's here to teach them that which is true. Now that leads us to one more thing. He has a different method and a, and a different message. Thirdly, he has a different foundation that he lays. Verse 5, he says, So that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Faith resting on the foundation of the wisdom of people is at very best fickle. It will change with the trends, with the times, with what is culturally in, in vogue, but whatever, is, whatever is cool, at the moment, it'll change with that. Think about how many times the fads and the ideas of church leaders have changed since Paul wrote these words. Think of all the things that have come along during that time. Had our foundation for living for Christ been built on the fads and trends of the times, and they changed with each whim, then our understanding of Christianity would be kind of like Dr. Luke. Remember Doc, Luke in the Bible was a doctor? Be be kind of like his medical abilities compared to today. There'd be no comparison. It wouldn't even be the same ballpark. And that's much of what has happened often in Christianity. By untethering from the Word of God, we're off on a loose cannon, going off somewhere, doing whatever is 
fashionable. Paul said, I didn't do that. And we shouldn't do that. Our foundation is secure. Folks, the very foundation that was laid in the New Testament scriptures is the foundation we live by and preach on today. Nothing's changed. I love that song that we've been singing recently, Ancient Words, Ever True. They haven't changed. We're preaching the same message that the Apostle Paul preached 2,000 years ago, and we should be. If we're preaching anything differently, then we have left the truth of God's Word. So Paul lays the foundation here, and that foundation, he says here, I've come to you not uh, on the wisdom of people, but in the power of God. And in verse 4, he talks about the demonstration of the Spirit and power. And some people jump on that and say, well, he, he's talking about signs and wonders. That the way he got them to listen to the gospel was by performing miracles. You know, healing people, raising the dead, uh, tongues and whatever. Folks, that not, is not mentioned at all here in this passage of Scripture. As a matter of fact, he says very clearly, without any question, what he's talking about when it comes to the power of God. Notice, notice what he says uh, going back up to verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? Power of God. Chapter uh, 2 and verse, or chapter 1 verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is the power of God? The gospel. Centered on Jesus Christ. That is what he came to proclaim, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the gospel of God, the, the centrality of Christ himself. And our foundation never changes. It's constantly the same, because that foundation is Christ and his great message of truth. That's where, our, where it read. He's, Paul's not against persuasive preaching. Are, are, are doing a good job in, in presenting the gospel. He is against self-reliance and thinking we can do the job. And that that is what we're being told over and over today. One of the most influential influencers, especially among women today, is a gal by the name of Rachel Hollis. Uh, many of you have probably heard of her, and, and many Christians are following her as well. So I, I mention her by name. Uh, Rachel Hollis uh, is a, a cheerleader for self-reliance. She's, she is telling people they can be anything they want to be and do anything they want to do. Just watch her and listen to her blogs, read her books. In her book, Girl, Wash Your Face, uh, she gives many, many illustrations of her doing exactly that and how we can do it ourselves. And she tells one story that really puts it together. She was on a half marathon. And I think that's, what, 13 miles or something like that? which is a bit insane to begin with, but whatever you want to do. But she's on a half marathon. And she's come to about mile 11, and she's about to tank out. I would have been tanked out on mile half. All right? <laughs> so here she is, and she's got to figure out a way to keep going. So she turns on her iPhone to a song. She needs a, needs a peppy song. So she turns on an 80s song called I Need a Hero. Some of you might know that song. And she sang it along with this song. And as she, as she did, she started thinking to herself, I, I don't, do I need a hero? Then she says, as she thought a little more, I am my own hero. I am my own hero. 
That's her message. And then she said this, the greatest message I can give you, my audience, is this. Only you have the power to change your life. Folks, there couldn't be anything more unbiblical than that. We're not saying you shouldn't take responsibility for your life, for your choices. Certainly you should. But the message that we've looked at today is that only Jesus Christ through the gospel can truly transform a life. Everything else is just rearranging the furniture on the Titanic. You're going down. Don't listen to messages like that. Go back to the centrality of the scripture. Scrap a bunch of those books and go back to the word of God and see what it has to say. Let me tell you why. There's not an issue you'll face. There's not a worry you have, not a concern that's out there that the word of God has not addressed hundreds and thousands of years ago in the way that God says it ought to be addressed. That's the message Paul preached and he wasn't ashamed of it. It was a message of salvation through Christ alone. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you now for your word, your truth. Lord, we read these things and we're, we, we, we love them. We also know there are so many times that we falter and we get sidetracked. Lord, help us to understand uh, that even this message today, Lord, and the power of the cross itself. Lord, I, I know people that are in this room, there's some surely that don't know you as Savior. And I pray, Father, that you would break their heart today. I, I really mean that, Lord. Break their heart. Give them great terror. Give them great concern. May they, may they recognize that they're, they're only moments from eternal damnation that they, if they don't know you as Savior. And yet, Lord, tell them through the word as we've seen this morning that there is a message found in Jesus Christ alone that will save their souls from sin for eternity and give them the life that never disappoints in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.